Welcome to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Adriana. And I'm Sophia. And we're going to talk to you today about nothingness, specifically a question that Father Caron asked in the title of his recent book, What Saves Us from Nothingness. Yeah, a really provocative formulation of a question that I think is relevant to all of us. And I know that we've talked about the fact that this is particularly relevant since the start of the pandemic. Would you talk about that connection and maybe bring to light for our listeners why this question of what saves us from nothingness is something that we should all be thinking about? Yeah, I think definitely in relation to the pandemic, just seeing how we've been so stripped away from exterior activity and a lot of our external life has diminished and many of us still experience homeboundedness in a way that we never have before. And we're faced with our own interior life and the questions of the meaning of existence and why am I here? Why does any of this matter in a way that we could perhaps avoid Mm. before the pandemic? Though certainly the pandemic didn't cause these questions or cause the experience of nothingness among us. Right. I like the phrase you use there of things being stripped away because I think that a lot of the things you mentioned, although good in and of themselves, can also buffer us from the urgency of these questions. It's like when I have my friends that I see every day and work that I find relatively easy and meaningful and the ability to travel when I get restless, it takes the edge off. I don't have the same kind of burning need to say, where is it that I find an answer ultimately to the emptiness of my heart, the need of my heart for meaning, for something to come to me today? So in that sense, I've been really challenged by Father Caron's characterization of the pandemic as an opportunity that we don't want to miss. Mm. He said this for the first time last March, right when the lockdown was being instituted. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be like two weeks (laughs) of (laughs) a radically restricted lifestyle. Definitely not an opportunity that I want to miss, right? Because it is the chance to really dive into life exactly where you are and search for the meaning of the most banal activities that you engage in every day. But as the pandemic has stretched on and on and on, and the restrictions have grown, I guess, more habitual, my renunciation of certain goods in my life, this question has in some sense gotten more urgent. What is it that saves me from nothingness when I'm into 12 months of working from home and not seeing my family and not being permitted to socialize? What is it that saves me from the void inside my heart that wants to say that none of this is worth doing, that none of this has any meaning? Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a really powerful reflection, and it reminds me even of just a conversation Julie and I had on redemptive suffering on our eagerness to avoid suffering and avoid looking at it, Mm. and the endurance of the pandemic. I mean, it's probably exhausted all of us from looking away so that we finally have to face ourselves and face the reality, and, and exactly what you're saying, how we all thought it would probably only last two weeks I mean, I can 
wrap my mind around two weeks, but it's much harder to wrap my mind around and therefore control an unknown mm-hmm. time frame for how long we'll be enduring this total disruption to what we've known previously of our lives. In some sense, that's why this is such an incredible opportunity, as Karon puts it, because really all of life is like this. Like we can hide from this question, but pandemic or no pandemic, we all have this need to find something that saves us from nothingness. And this is a need that never goes away. So I think while this topic is particularly relevant to our current living situation, it's something that informs and illuminates the path of our entire life. But I guess one thing that might be helpful to start with here at the beginning of our episode is an exploration of what nothingness is. Like, what is this void and this emptiness that we're talking about? Yeah, I think on an existential level, before we talk specifically about nihilism, emptiness is something, like you said, that's constitutive of us, that, you know, we're human and we're made in time and we have an emptiness in our hearts. That's not the final answer, which we'll obviously argue and experience ourselves. But I'm reminded even of Ash Wednesday when we receive the ashes and sometimes we'll hear, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. Yeah. And there's a movement in our lives, whether we acknowledge it or not, towards our death. You know, the great fear of nothingness is that death is ultimately meaningless. For me, the image that always comes to mind here is people who who put like their entire CV on their tombstone. <laughs> there are a couple of them in the Notre Dame Cemetery. And it always saddens me because it's almost as though this attitude is attempting to cling to a meaning that you tried to create for yourself on earth mm-hmm. in the hope that that's enough to give meaning to your death. Now, I understand there are other reasons to be celebrating, you know, your academic accomplishments. But for me, that's such an image of this feeling of what it's like to live under the grips of nothingness. Day by day goes by and you perform your duties and you go through the motions of your work and you might even accomplish wonderful things and get to the heights of whatever ladder it is that you're climbing. But The life within that, the reason that you're doing that, the truth that animates it is lost. And so you feel kind of like a shell or a husk of a person. I know I've felt like this before and still do some days. This feeling that T.S. Eliot describes with this line, this poignant line, where is the life we have lost in living? Mm. That for me really captures this existential nihilism, this nothingness that you're talking about. Yeah, I think beneath the existential nothingness, there is a philosophy that many of us aren't even aware of, of nihilism, that takes such an extreme form of nothingness that many of us would shy away from and argue that, you know, we're not nihilist, though we often live like it. Yeah, it's a functional nihilism, I think, not not so much an intellectual commitment to, well, because nihilism is philosophically is the claim that values are ultimately meaningless and even that existence itself has no meaning. And there are a number of different forms of it. You can be a moral nihilist or political nihilist, but really what it comes down to is this loss of 
value. I think few of us would ascribe to that, but functionally, like when we observe ourselves in action, that's a phrase of Jusani that he loves to use, to observe yourself in action. And when you look at your life, I know when I look at my life, I often see an implicit kind of nihilism, an abdication of the desire to find the meaning of whatever it is that I'm doing, my relationships, my work, my daily duties that I repeat over and over again every day. Yeah, I mean, it's much easier to live as a functional nihilist because we don't have to seek out the truth outside of us and can become self-arbiters where we decide what's true for us and we decide what's good for us. And in our culture, I think most of us live like that in our everyday lives, and then we don't want to ascribe to it when it's forced upon us universally. We'd like to still adhere to some objective claims. Like, everyone would like to adhere to an objective claim that genocide is bad, and yet we live our everyday lives in such relativism that it's perhaps not evident that we would think that if you looked at our actions like Jusani implores. Mm-hmm. I think this is one place that we really see that our modern culture is so influenced by Nietzsche. The philosopher who first popularized this concept of nihilism, he got it from a Russian novel. So it's actually one of the few philosophical ideologies that has its origin in, in literature in the first place. But Nietzsche believed that there are no facts, only interpretations. That phrase has always struck me because when I first read it, I immediately saw in it my generation's way of approaching conflict and claims to justice and shaping your own life path. Like all of these things, the locus is placed in the individual and there's a rejection of any kind of objective value. But again, as you pointed out, with that comes the loss of so many things that we would want to hold on to. Yeah, totally. And I mean, the risk is the loss of any objective goodness and any ability to communicate with one another if we're all our own individual arbiters of truth, which we see playing out right now in American politics, for sure. Yeah. Where else do you see this sort of functional nihilism? I guess we can start more at the cultural level before exploring more where we see this dynamic unfold in our own personal lives. Yeah, I think we've talked about this in a lot of episodes, but our culture of self-creation and self-affirmation and the cultural value on the self-made person. I see this a lot in magazines. And I'm actually reminded of the Forbes article of Kylie Jenner as like the first self-made billionaire Mm. and the false language of self-made as if it's possible that we we can make ourselves without anyone else. Pope Benedict In his definition of the human person, he says the human person is a being related in love. Mm. So you can't even understand what it means to be human unless you understand that we're related. And then to have the culture, the popular culture, suggest, perhaps implicitly, because as we've said, it's somewhat incoherent, that we can self-create and we can self-affirm denies that we need anyone else, that we need to be related, or that we need anyone to give us to ourselves. And it leads ultimately to like a total loss of self and despair. I agree. I think that 
end point, that loss of self and that despair, I think that's very evident if we just take a look at, for instance, the rising rates of mental illness among young people. Now, I'm a neuroscientist. I know there are many different causes of mental illness and a lot of different ways that it presents. So I'm not chalking all of it up to this. But I think back to an essay that Viktor Frankl wrote on nihilism. And he made the point that depression and anxiety often arise psychiatrically because of a loss of meaning and purpose in one's day-to-day life. That because we're spiritual beings as well as physical and psychological, that this kind of loss that you're talking about, the loss of the relationship, the loss of the connection to a truth outside of myself that animates my life, that can actually provoke the kinds of biological and psychological illness that we see. Mm. And I think particularly with the pandemic, this is a real danger if we don't address the breadth of causes that are contributing to the crisis. Yeah, I definitely think the incidence of anxiety and depression points to the cultural nihilism that we're talking about. I think also of Vivek Murthy, the former U.S. Surgeon General, said that the epidemic of our times was an epidemic of loneliness. Mm. And argued that upwards of 50% of American adults lived with continued loneliness in their lives. Wow. And I think we've come in the cultural emptiness, we've come to accept that and limit our own desires and minimize them so that we've started settling for less. You are so right. I think that one of the symptoms I see of our cultural nihilism, but also in my own life and the life of others, this sort of numbness and this, as you said, settling for less than what my desires point to. You know, whether it takes shape in the life of a student who's living for the end of the semester or someone at work who's living for the weekend, it often is manifest in this kind of escapism, but also just a surrender in front of what seem like circumstances that are too difficult to conquer, whether it's suffering, as we've talked about before, but also just a job that you don't find meaningful or a relationship that doesn't quite offer you what your heart actually longs for. Mm -hmm. There's this real temptation to just wait for the time to pass instead of saying, what can save me? What can open my eyes to the meaning of what it is that I'm living? Yeah. And I think that's why Father Caron's question, what saves me from nothingness was so provocative to me because it's a question that the culture rejects before even asking. There's nothing that can save you from nothingness. So we have to avoid the question and we need to anesthetize ourselves entirely from any inkling of it. And the pandemic has made it so that we can no longer do that. We don't have bars and nightclubs that we can go to. A lot of our hookup culture has been diminished. We can't hide from ourselves as easily any longer. I do think some coping strategies remain. Like I think, as you mentioned, the divisiveness that we see in the political scene, I think that taking refuge in political ideologies Mm. is one way that people try to cope with the void instead of addressing it head on as Caron did. Yeah, and if we've come to embrace an ultimate meaninglessness to life, we kind of have nothing left but to demand a perfect social order and come even to worship that. 
not to diminish in any way the good ways in which our culture has attempted to seek more justice and live better. Right. But to not have those rightly ordered and to make social justice the god has had tremendously polarizing consequences, certainly on American culture and American politics. Right. If I can't address a problem that starts in the heart, that starts with the fact that I don't experience my life as meaningful, then the problem has to be out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the continuing temptation of emptiness, that it's always before us. You know, it's not something that we've ever conquered, even you and me or anyone who's given their lives over to Christ. We still live with our own emptiness. Yes. And our own mortal deaths before us. I think even of the gospel of Lazarus, who's resurrected by Jesus, you know, he later goes on to die. And we don't always acknowledge that in that miracle. Yeah, that's a striking image and one that helps me make sense of the fact that even though I have been met and conquered by Christ and converted from this own attitude, I still wake up nine days out of 10 as a functional nihilist, like dominated by the void. And I need to ask every morning when I get out of bed for that to be answered by something, for something to fill that nothingness with a presence. I definitely don't want to give the impression that this is something that we, you know, you come to Jesus once and all of a sudden you no longer struggle with nihilism. Like if anything, you feel the question is more urgent because you know you've tasted what it's like to have an answer to that emptiness. And so you want it Mm -hmm. with more urgency, but it doesn't mean we're like, you know, living in a state of beatific vision now where we no longer struggle. Yeah, I think that's why this question was so helpful to me because it gave language for me to ask myself each morning, particularly in the forms of functional nihilism that I'm most tempted towards, which I think are often just a melancholic living or sort of a numbness about my days, where I sort of just sit around, not in total despair, but in kind of a self-pity if something isn't going my way, or my toddler has refused to nap again, and I find myself asking without really thinking about it, how much longer am I going to have to endure this, or... Mm-hmm living as if the possibility of the hundredfold isn't before me. And Father Caron's question has stayed with me in these days and demanded of me in those moments that I look for an answer. And I think even that is the beginning of steps towards an answer because it's a recognition that I'm not made for nothingness and I should be demanding And begging, even in this experience, for that to be made known to me. And there's a recognition, too, that I can't answer the question on my own. Yes. Really important points that you've made there. I can definitely relate to that. I think for me, it often takes perhaps a more anxious form of trying to create or project a meaning myself into a situation when I don't experience that, instead of the posture that you mentioned of begging, of asking for an answer to come from Mm -hmm. outside of myself. 
But as we mentioned on our heresies episode, this is Pelagian. This is not actually how life works. You can't work hard enough to answer the question, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The answer doesn't come from me. I can't produce it mm-hmm. and grasp it on my own. Um, it's a it's a mercy that descends to meet me. So what helps you then walk towards that answer? Because it's true. We're not the ones who create the meaning, but it is in begging for it and running towards it that we find it. So what is it that helps you just stay in front of your question and keep asking for an answer to it? I think first, and this is a really crucial step, is recognizing, like I said, that we're not made for nothingness. I don't think that is a common recognition among our culture anymore, even perhaps among many Christians where we just have such poor catechesis that we don't live as if we know that truth in our hearts. Um, So I think that is a really important first step. And then second, recognizing our relationality so that we can be in a posture of receptivity to receive God and to receive love from others. And even understanding myself as relational, I know that ultimately I can't affirm myself and that I need the affirmation of others. And to be aware of that and and okay with it, where I think because our culture is a culture of self-creation, we see that aspect of ourselves as a weakness and something that we have to hide or lie about. Hmm. And that leads to a real despair. And I recognize that in, in myself. So to be able to say, you know, I do need your affirmation of my being, and that helps me to one, know I'm lovable, and two, remember that I'm relational, is a vulnerable position because it gives myself over to you. You can or you cannot affirm me. But it's a truer position. Right, than closing yourself off in a barricade with your functional nihilism that you pretend isn't there. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think those are really important and true aspects of that dynamic in my own life as well. I think I'd also point to an attentive eye on my daily life, mm-hmm. which sounds weird, right? Because we all go through our days. How can it be that we're not attentive to them? But I mean, like really paying attention to the small details of what happens to me and not taking for granted the things that maybe have happened a thousand times, but I still can receive as gift and look for something new in them and look for where they're coming from and what they mean. To give an example, I I was having a really hard day in work last week and I got frustrated with myself and this seemingly senseless process of research when you really never know what you're going to find, if you're going to find anything, if it's going to help anyone If it's even true, you know, these are the questions that run through my mind and bring me to the edge of the precipice. Like, this is the void that we're talking about. And I I went on a walk, and this was after the sun had set, and I was tempted to just put my headphones on and distract myself with a podcast or whatever it was, but instead just looked at the sky as I walked. And I was so moved by the beauty of the moon and the way that the clouds were moving across it that I literally just had to stop and pray and recognize that 
Christ was present with me and to pray the words of the Psalms that praise his care for all of creation and his care for the human person. That experience of wonder in front of the beauty of the moon, which is something I've seen thousands and thousands of times, Mm -hmm. was what enabled me to go back to my work and say, Lord, you're the one who created that and you're the one who created me. So if you've also created my work, like show me that it's meaningful. And it wasn't immediate, but I have come back around (laughs) to believing that my research is worthwhile. Yeah, so I think that sort of attentiveness, it doesn't come instinctively to me. I'm always tempted to think that I've already seen and already understand whatever it is that I'm coming across. So I think this movement of becoming open once more to really observing my life, to really having my eyes open, that is a really important step for me in in overcoming nihilism. Yeah, as you were speaking, I was reminded of a memory of us, which is another aspect I want to point out, which is really companionship, I think, is so important to overcoming this experience of nothingness. And I was reminded of a time when I was sitting in my dorm room, and I remember I had the lights off, and I was upset. I don't remember what it was about. I was upset about something, and I was just sitting there kind of in literal darkness and also emotional darkness. And I texted you and it was in the middle of the day and I had no idea if you were available to ask if you wanted to go for a walk around the lakes. And you responded right away and said yes. And we lived like, you know, 10 feet from one another. The glory days. Yeah. (laughs) Now we're 7,000 miles from each other. Something like that. (laughs) And we went for a walk around the lakes and it didn't answer whatever question or conflict I had in my heart at that moment that I don't remember now, but it was pulling me out of that space, pulling me out both literally and internally Mm. from where I was. And I don't even think I understood that movement until we were later in School of Community, which is the weekly moment of catechesis that we come together in in school of community with one another. Right. This is in communion and liberation. Yeah. And our friend, Eladia, I was sharing the story and she said, don't you see that that was a prayer when you texted Sophia and asked her to meet up with you, that that was a prayer and it was answered by him through Sophia. And it was so illuminating to me. And it's something that I carry now as a history between both you and me you, Sophia, but also me and Christ, mm. that he'll answer if I if I ask and seek outside of myself to escape from my own temptations to nothingness. And ultimately, I think this speaks to Caron's whole point and the point of Christianity that what we await is an encounter, an encounter with Christ. Yes. And we either experience as Brother Caron says, an encounter that totally enraptures us and totally moves us to break us outside of our nothingness or we remain within it. Exactly. Exactly. And I love that story because first it makes me nostalgic, but also because it points to the fact that this encounter with Christ happens in the flesh. It happens in your life, Mm -hmm. in your experience, in your circumstances, in the relationships and in your work. 
You don't have to leave your life to find this. And that's precisely why it's the answer to nihilism. It's a presence in the flesh, not an abstract idea that came onto the human scene 2,000 years ago and left as quickly as it arrived, but a presence today. We've talked before about the fact that Christ promises the hundredfold to those who follow him a hundred times over whatever it is we leave for his name. This is how it happens, by saying yes to the encounter with him and leaving the emptiness and the nothingness behind. Yeah, what you said just moved me so much because I think of how many friends and acquaintances I have that have said they still identify with Christianity because they really like the moral life or the virtues that it instills in a person. This always stings my heart because... It's just not enough. Why would you? I sure as hell wouldn't. I mean, you could, <laughs> <laughs> you could join a club or, I mean, and how does it answer the martyrdoms? Why would you ever die for some virtues that could be instilled? Yeah. It's so unsatisfying. Unless it's a presence now, there's no reason to give your whole life to this. And it wouldn't have the power to transform that it does. Yeah. So where do you see that? Because I think perhaps for for some of our listeners, as it was to me when I first heard this formulation of Christianity, it might sound abstract, even as we're saying it's not. So where in your life do you see this breaking onto the scene and answering that nothingness, as you shared in, in the story about our walk around the lakes? But what are some other habitual places that this reawakens you, this presence comes to you? I think, and this is helpful for me, it's important to have your own narrative with Christ in your mind because, you know, the temptation to nothingness is before us. So it's not at every moment that we experience an active encounter. Mm -hmm. But when I think back to my own history and certainly in college, I never would have professed nihilism, but I definitely lived as a functional nihilist. I was a frequent participator in the drinking culture on campus, the hookup culture on campus, and I didn't give a lot of thought to it. I thought that it was perfectly compatible with weekly mass attendance. Though in my heart, I recognized that it wasn't satisfying. I just didn't think there was really anything else. Mm. Perhaps I did think there was something else for other people, but for me, I probably had such low self-esteem that I thought that that was enough for me and I needed to make my desires commensurate with what I had before me. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of lived like that throughout college with moments and experience of transcendence that would shake me and make me long for more, but Without any prayer life, I had no idea really how to how to live differently. And then through studying philosophy, I came intellectually to believe in the teachings of the church and in the philosophy underlying so many of the teachings of the church that became very intellectually compelling to me. But still, without a prayer life, I think I still lived as in this nothingness. And I can see it in so many ways now where Christ was making himself known to me and really kind of reaching down to me but I would fall back into my same old habits. And then after college, when I entered the Navy and went on my first deployment, 
And in some ways, similar to the pandemic, where I was so stripped away from everything, I was on a ship and I had lost my entire social life. I had lost my boyfriend. I was living kind of more of a monastic life with the same routine every day. I realized that my life meant nothing. And my own emptiness was so transparent that it overcame me. And I felt like the only thing left for me was prayer. So I started praying the rosary, actually. I started praying the rosary every day on deployment and going to mass every day. We were really fortunate to have a Catholic priest on board our ship. And I had my best friend on board with me, too. And she also started praying the rosary with me and going to mass with me. And we both were just kind of awakened through prayer to the reality that there was more than the lives we were leading and that we wanted more and it was okay that we wanted more. And I think that was really important to see my own desires for what they were and to actually let those start guiding my experience. Mm -hmm. And that was a really life-changing experience in that deployment. It wasn't definitely overnight. It was 10 months long. And through the daily celebration of mass and the daily rosary, my whole life was changed and my habits changed so that when I returned to San Diego, I felt like I was a different person and I had to live differently and I had to seek Christ in this new and intentional way and look for him in the methods that he was giving to me and that he continues to give to us like the church. And I didn't have all the answers. I could tell even then how fragile I was. But over time, he really answered me and he was so faithful in you know, giving that strength to not only see these desires in my heart and decide that I was going to live by them, but come to love them. Because I think more frequently, perhaps we recognize these desires, but we hate them because we don't think they can be answered. Mm. And that develops in us a self-hatred for those weakest parts of ourselves or those most vulnerable areas that we don't believe have an infinite correspondence. So all we can do is avoid them and then eventually hate them. For me, overcoming that was to finally love those desires in myself. And that's where I could meet Christ. Wow. A beautiful answer. Thank you. I love your emphasis on remembering your personal history as essential to your begging now, your begging today. I think that's beautiful and really true that that's what prayer is, is remembering what the Lord has done and who he is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Could you share with us how that encounter is made aware to you in your daily reality? I have a similar story to you in terms of how Christ first entered the scene in my life, I really hit rock bottom in high school. And it was his mercy that, as I've shared on previous episodes, taught me that my life does actually have a meaning. But today, this dynamic unfolds, thankfully, in a less dramatic fashion, at least externally. Um, I'm often reawoken to the meaning of my life through, as I shared, moments of wonder and awe, like with the moon. Um, as you mentioned, through the church, so receiving the sacraments mm -hmm. and being amazed by the words of scripture and the companionship of believers too. So having, I'm blessed by having so many incredible witnesses of 
people who love Christ and follow him and live the minute details of their life with an awareness of the fact of his presence. So talking with them and learning from them and just walking with them really reawakens me to the way that I want to live. And I think as you mentioned about desires, it's also really important for me to be taught to go back to my desires as the starting point for this. My desire, no matter how improbable it seems that Christ might answer it, and no matter how persistent it is, just trusting that my desires for love and for fulfillment and for truth and for all of these things, that they all point to an answer who is present to me here today. And here the story I always go back to is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. She who had five different husbands and we don't know what those relationships were like or what caused them, but clearly she had a thirst. Mm -hmm. She She was thirsting for something. And Christ chooses to wait for her at the well to promise her living water. And so for me, that is always such a comfort when I think about my insatiable thirst. Yeah. When you're talking about scripture, I think too of the parable of the prodigal son and was really praying with that this week. For those who haven't prayed with the prodigal son or the Samaritan women, I'd invite you to do that. Reading the parable of the prodigal son with this question of what saves me from nothingness helped illumine again. God's desire to give of himself as answer to that question. His only need for us is to be willing to receive him. I'm reminded of what Father Colin said on our evangelization episode, that we're made to receive and that this is not something to be ashamed of. So I think that's a a helpful and beautiful place to start wrapping up our episode here. And this is a bottomless topic. (laughs) But I think that it's going to help me in the coming week to really be faithful to my desire to find meaning, the true meaning of what it is that I'm living and to not cover over that desire and abdicate to the nothingness. Is there a weekly challenge that you would recommend for our listeners? Yeah. Just ask yourself this question, what saves me from nothingness? And perhaps ask it each morning this week, And ask yourself, if you're new to this question, why does it matter that I have an answer to it? Hmm. Um, And perhaps journal that out if that's a practice of yours. And if the question really provokes you the way it has for you and me, you know, ask each morning that God send you an encounter that day that'll remind you of the meaning of life and of his love for you. And write down that encounter. I mean, that's part of your narrative. Beautiful. Do you have a media recommendation for us, Sophia? I'm going to recommend Jean-Paul Sartre's Nausea. It's a short book, very manageable, um, but I think does a better job than anything I have ever read at capturing what it's like to live with the despair and the self-loathing and the literal nausea at life that comes from going through the motions day after day without an awareness that any of it has any meaning. So I would recommend it not because it's a picture of how we want to live, but because I think it is honest in Mm. depicting the urgency of this question. 
Yeah, thank you. I I think that's why, you know, I've even appreciated reading Nietzsche because of the honesty. Mm -hmm. I love Nietzsche. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to read John Paul Sartre. I haven't read Nausea or any of his work, and you've definitely convinced me. It's horrible. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think that is all that we have today on nihilism. Thanks for joining us today. And if you haven't, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review. That's how we show up more in searches for other people to listen and discover us and know of our prayers for you in this week. Count on it. And we'll see you here next week on The Pilgrim Soul.